My name is Brian Enos, and I'll be reading today's scripture reference for us, which is James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. When my oldest son was in fifth grade, I picked him up from school and we stopped back here at the church and we're sitting in the parking lot and he was kind of quiet and I asked him how school went and he started to cry. He told me that one of his friend's parents were getting divorced. And even just after he said those words, he just wept so hard, cried so hard. He just didn't understand it. He, was, he knew his friend was sad. His fr- I think at the lunch table, his friend had told his, these buddies sitting there. And uh, my oldest just felt that. He even said to me, and I, just, I was appreciative of his empathy for his friend. He said, every time I think about it, I think he goes, I think, what if you and mom separated? He goes, I don't know what i do. I'm like, that's a fair statement. It hurts, doesn't it? You feel for your friend. And this is, this is a reality that we all have faced in some way or another with our friends or family in our lives, broken relationship, broken marriages even. You, know, you, you, you might be surprised to hear that that's the imagery that's behind the harsh language in the passage Brian just read for us. That, that's, the, that's the imagery. There's a whole book in the Old Testament, book of Hosea, that describes this covenantal relationship between God and his people. And literally, James is copying and pasting language from that book and from elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the churches, God's people's infidelity toward God in regard to their covenant commitment to him. So it's harsh, the strong language. I mean, the, the second word in verse 4 is PG-13. We're getting into it. But it's rooted in a testimony of God's people who have been tempted from the beginning not to be faithful to their God, but to worship other, lesser, unworthy gods, to be adulterous in their spiritual relationships. James does not want that for God's people. So it feels harsh. Remember, I've warned you, sometimes the God, the God's word speaks to the brokenhearted. Those are easier to receive. Sometimes he speaks to the hard-hearted. And to be fair, chapters 3 and 4 have been a lot of the hard-hearted. But think of it like a cancer, that you don't want to dwell in your body and you want it removed. 
or for our young people, just think of a hangnail, small little, or, 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 or a little splinter in your finger, small little thing. You're probably going to survive, but it's bothersome and you want to get it out and you'll even allow a needle to break the skin around it just to pluck it out because you don't want it in your finger anymore. So too, God does not want such cancers or foreign elements in our life and is willing to speak pastorally to us to say, stop, remove it, be faithful to me because I have been and always will be faithful to you. So James has challenged the church for its lack of maturity that shows itself in fighting and quarreling. Now he calls the church to repentance. Wash your hands, church. That's what I think this text is saying. Well, let's look at the details. But before we do, pray with me. Father, help us to hear your word this morning. That again this week as we honor your lordship and kingship over us, this gathering and this institution that is sacred and holy, we ask for you to teach and rebuke and correct and train us to be righteous men and women and children who love you, who are faithful to you, and who serve you because you first loved us and have been faithful to us and have served us through your son, Jesus. So minister to us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that opening verse there, verse 4, is totally copying and pasting from the Old Testament prophets. If you were to go and, and, and decide to miss the Bears game because you're not super encouraged about the results, and just read the book of Hosea today, you'd be like, oh, that sounds like James 4. Yes, it does. And oh, by the way, that's not a question. That's a statement. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Then he answers at the end of verse 4, therefore anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, we better define friendship, because in our world, friendship is pretty loose. Like, I got, yeah, he's my friend. What's his name again? Like, that's not the kind of friend James is talking about, or like Facebook version friend. No. Friendship in the ancient world was way more involved than friendship in the modern world today. The, the, the title of a friend was actually a bit more formal. We use it informally. Like we speak of friends pretty loosely, almost like acquaintance. Now, it has a greater range. We might have a friend we've known for 30 years that when trouble strikes, that's the one we call. That would fit more this than just a guy you've known for a couple years, but you can't even remember his last name. In the ancient world, the title friend was reserved for those who would make a lifelong pact with another person and with whom there were shared values and loyalties. So I almost want you to think of it this way. When you hear the word friendship, think marriage. Lifelong pact, shared values and loyalties. That, that, that isn't stretching the term too much. Obviously, it's not just between a man and a woman. We're talking about bonds and unity that would happen between all types of people. But it's very formal. Jesus even uses that language, kind of offering to his disciples this title of friend. That's not just a, I like you, do you like me? That's a formal commitment. 
So feel that language. So now go back to verse 4 and read that again, removing the Facebook category and putting in this biblical definition. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship, or call it marriage, with the world means enmity against God? Let's see how adulterous language fits more now, like an affair, like infidelity. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a spouse of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, when you hear the word world, I don't want you just to deny all the good realities of world. I I worry that in the last century, we've had the tendency to do that a bit more. Kind of an escapist, removal, denial, purity from kind of approach to the world. The world was created good. Seven times I said that in Genesis 1 and 2. World is is not denying the goodness of the world like science, art, culture. That's common grace. That's all good. It's talking about the spiritual corruption of the world. So not everything, not everyone, but that relational dynamic that is at war with God. The distortion of God's good things. So the point is this. If you are married to God, you cannot be married to the world. I, I, in that first point, I said it this way. If we are committed to Christ, we cannot be committed to the world. If you share the values and loyalties of God, you cannot share the values and loyalties of the world. Now, what makes that tricky is that's hard to see. James' rebuke is difficult because friendship with the world happens gradually, incrementally, in a thousand little ways that feel neutral, normal, and hard to see and hard to stop. It's, it's like watching your kids grow, and all of a sudden you're standing at the kitchen counter like, what happened? I saw you yesterday. You're like two inches taller. They're really not. They didn't grow two inches at night. At least I don't think so. You can't see it, but suddenly you notice the difference. The contrast comes into focus. To use James' examples from before in James, we fight and quarrel over little things. But why? What led to those fights? Because we're driven by a bitter envy and a selfish ambition that matches the values and loyalties of the world. It's not like we read a, read a paper, heard, heard a podcast, and all of a sudden, I'm convinced. And then we, It's slowly being discipled by the world. It's hard to see. But it happens. Watching, as some will do, three hours of a sporting event in, in one day, how many commercials are you going to hear discipling you to direct your affections to who you are, what you should be, and what's most important? Do you think you can watch those things and not be discipled in some way? Again, I'm not, I'm not calling for unplug the TV and throw it off the, into the into the woods. I'm just simply saying, be aware. It's incremental. It's hard to see, but the world is trying to disciple. A good test case 
for us to help begin to see this would be to select a few values and compare the response of Christians in the world. And you could do this yourself. In fact, it really, all of this requires God's Spirit to evaluate into our lives and say, Lord, in what ways have I been directed or discipled by the values and loyalties of the world in contrast to Christ? But let me just name a few, and you think with me about this. Something like the category of power. How does the world think of power? Who's in charge? Whether it's in the political realm or in the home, authority, leadership, dominance. Versus how does God think of it? The Christian would have to say power belongs to God alone. King, Congress, Parliament, President, they have a place. But true power belongs to God alone. Power is not mine to claim. Think of, think of in our marriages and in our families. How That's the question. Who's in charge? Who's the authority? Even that passage in Ephesians 5, which is so often used to leverage leadership and power. I really think a lot of times we're asking questions that are driven from our culture. Because when you turn to Ephesians 5... You don't see it focusing a lot on the authority and power Christ had over his church. Do you know what you see? Sacrifice and suffering. But we still always ask the question, well, who's in charge? In my marriage, who's in charge? Well, I think Ephesians 5 is actually saying, who's going to serve more? Who's going to sacrifice more? But that's not the question that our culture has discipled us to ask when it comes to the word authority. How about money? How would the Bible think differently about money than how our culture would disciple us to think? We probably wouldn't be surprised if we were able to evaluate that nearly every decision we make is in some way influenced by economics, which is a good and important value. Is it the only value? How should the Christian define or think about money. Christians should be marked by generosity. Not just because there's a quid pro quo, I, I get something, I give to you, I get something back, or some strings attached. But literally just giving sacrificially, not just out of the overflow. I got a little extra, you can have that. Or how about contentment? Every commercial you watch today, you will, you will have somebody telling you, you are not enough without this product. I remember I was watching a Chevy commercial, and it was almost trying to say that it, was, it will give you identity. It gives you life. Chevy? Is that only with the upper-level package and leather seats, or can I get that with cloth? <laughs> Chevy, your life. Not really, no. I mean, some of those should make the Christian laugh. Yet if we don't realize it, it feels neutral. It comes right through all the defenses right? We'd, ne we'd never, ever, ever watch a show that drops the F-bond, but we'll be told a hundred times about how we need something material, and there's no alarms going off. How about success? How would the world define it? Great fame? Wealth? Where you're not dependent on anyone? Celebrity? Being well-known for being well-known. Health is a successful life only if you're healthy. Is a successful kid only if they get straight A's or get into a good college. 
How would Christ define success? Humility, suffering, compassion, submission, obedience. So who's the successful athlete in your eyes? The star quarterback or the kid who literally has about as much coordination as a, as a chipmunk who cannot catch, who cannot throw, who cannot run and has no strength, but strives to be as faithful and as fruitful as he can? Who's more successful? But notice how easily in those topics the world's definitions had a say in our thinking. Th think of some that get thrown a lot, a couple extra that get thrown around a lot. Freedom. Now, what would a modern American define as freedom? Probably have a political reality to it. What would the Bible describe as freedom? Would it look American? Wouldn't a biblical definition of freedom have to fit not just United States of America, but North Korea and China? Couldn't it work in both places? Wouldn't a biblical definition of freedom equally fit not just a white man living in our community, but a black woman living 200 years ago in this country? Boy, politically, socially, those would be very different levels of freedom. But biblically, what is true freedom? Or how about the language of rights? My rights, I have rights. Just, again, ask yourself the question. How often are those definitions being defined by the world? How did Christ define rights? He gave up his rights. I guess that wasn't successful or powerful either, was it? So just notice how, if we're not careful, what is seemingly neutral and olderless disciples us. And James is calling that out. He's saying, brothers and sisters, Scripture needs to work like a level to help you align yourself to God. Because you've all done it. You've all put a level up and said, whoa, up on the right, real far. Like it looked pretty good up close and from the human eye, but when you really put a level up to it, it was way off. And the human eye just couldn't see it. So scripture like a level helps you see, how do I define power? How do I f define success? How, do I, how, how does money work in my thinking? Or freedom, or rights? Again, I, we can't apply all these to all our situations, but, but I would ask you that you would respond to God's word. And by the way, if you're not willingly responding, the Holy Spirit might have a say, but you let yourself think about how do you define those things and how has a worldly definition, to use James' language, discipled you in ways that actually pulled you away from a faithful commitment to God? Because if we are committed to Christ, we cannot be committed to the world. Verse, verses 5 and 6 move on. Listen to James' language. Or do you think, notice he's, he's still asking another question that's really not asking but telling. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? 
James continues to argue his point from Scripture. Again, this is before the New Testament was published. He's talking about the Old Testament, which again, he's clearly quoting from freely. That language that God is jealous. Fear did such a good job explaining that for the kids. It's not just jealous because your friend got a new red bike. It's jealous in love. It's jealous in commitment and faithfulness. Jealous here is in the sense of a marriage. An expectation of faithfulness and commitment. And then there's that interesting phrase at the end of verse 5. He jealously longs for, here's this phrase, the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. Now, translations have to determine, is that a lowercase s or an uppercase s? Because it could be either. If it's a lowercase s, it's talking about the spirit that he put in us in Genesis 1 and 2 at creation. God created, he blew in us. He created us to be made in his image. He gave us life. So he, in that sense, it would be God the creator saying, dude, I made you. Like we didn't just like come from separate domains of the universe. We're like, you want to be friends? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Commitment. No, no, like I created you. I sustain you. Every little carbon in your body belongs to me. And you're going to be unfaithful to our relationship. It could mean that. And that would be pretty potent. It could also be an uppercase S, where it's the, not just the first creation, the creation in the beginning, but the new creation, the Holy Spirit, new life, not just first life. Maybe both are in view. Who knows? But both are powerful. Scripture tells us that we belong to God. As his children, we are married to him with Christ being the bridegroom and the church is his bride. We cannot forget that. Now, now verse 6 made me laugh this week because my daughter, I, I obviously said some time ago that lots of big butts in the Bible and my daughter thought that was hilarious. I was not talking about the double T butt. But literally this week, she comes up to me, leans on me and says, are there any big butts in this passage? <laughs> there actually is, Ruthie. Verse 6. There's a big butt in the Bible here. After, but, but, but seriously, listen to this. After calling us adulterous, please hear this. You want to hear? God can speak to the hard-hearted, but he always speaks from the cross. After calling us adulterous people, after claiming that we have broken in various ways, our faithful commitment to him, after saying he has full ownership rights over us, he says, but he gives us more grace. Like, do you hear the response of God? This is not some God who is trying to crush his people, but to heal them and redeem them and restore them. But he gives us more grace. Yes, Ruthie, there's a big but in this passage too. And I'm looking at you right now. <laughs> and then James says this, but he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says, God opposes, opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. That word favor is the same root for the word grace. That verse arguably summarizes the thrust of the entire message of scripture. It's literally quoting from Proverbs 3.34. God opposes the proud, but shows 
favor, grace to the humble. So, so hear this, brothers and sisters, as you wrestle with your friendship and relationship to the world, the God who made you and who gives you new life is willing to forgive your unfaithfulness to him and simply asks you to humble yourself as if there was another position you'd have with God. You can't come as equals. You have no rights before him. He is creator. You are creation. That sounds so easy, yet so many people in our world today fail to do this. Why? I'm not even speaking about us in the church. I'm just talking about the world. How can we live as if there is no God, giving no recognition to him? Is it because the world ignores that they are made by God? They've got their theories for how they came and we came to be, and they're denying their creator? Is it because they reject their constant need for God as if you can sustain yourself? Is it that they, they deny that they must be saved by God? Brothers and sisters, we're going to see that in the world all day long. You can imagine the misalignment of loyalty and values with such thinking. Let that not be in the church. Let that not be any of us today. God is a jealous God, but he is also gracious. Praise be to God. Finally, the, the passage ends with this lengthy list of commands. Submit, verse 7. Resist, verse 7. Come near, verse 8. Wash your hands, verse 8. Purify your hearts, verse 8. Grieve, mourn, wail, verse 9. Change your laughter to mourning. Change your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves. There's a lot of commands. James is pastoring us toward faithfulness in our marriage to Christ. And he lists, lists all these commands that I think can be summarized by three things. In fact, you could even argue that taken together, they're kind of like a three-step process. Submission, resistance, and repentance. Let's start with submission, that beginning in verse 7. Notice the then there. Submit yourselves then to God. It's like he's responding to the question, okay, James, how then do I deal with what I see in myself as this adultery of the heart, the idols of the heart? Well then, first, submit yourselves to God. The first step toward humility is submission. Now, that's a negative word in our culture. It is not a negative word in the church. In the Bible, submission means this, ordering your life under God's authority and God's will. That is hard to do. You never, by the way, get a master's degree in submission. All of us remain first graders in letting God be God over all things. And it's not just on the sunny days. It's on the rainy days where it's hard to say, you are God. I am not. So, so, so one aspect of submission is our posture. Let God be God. Let him be God over the way that he designed the world. Let his word be an authority in our life. Let his providence do its work in and around us. We let God be God. That's that very beginning step that a small child can do. And the most senior saint needs to work hard at. But it's also a practice, learning how to order your life under God's authority and under God's will. 
legions to King Jesus. Trust in his perfect plans and his promises. That is hard work. That's why we need to, that's why we gather and sing these songs and we sit under his word and we gather in a small group and we're constantly encouraging, pray for me, pray for me. I struggle with this. I'm trying to do this. Help me. And we need one another. Submission. The second step, I think, is resistance, and it's there at the last half of verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If we are going to be faithful to God, we must avoid the temptation of the world. And I think that this phrase here, resist the devil, is using the devil as the primary representative of the world. You're married to Christ, who is the primary representative of God. So resist the devil who is the primary representative of the world. While not much detail is given here about exactly how this happens, the application is clear. Commitment to God requires a decommitment from the world. Now again, we've done this, I think, poorly in the last century, to be fair. Our fundamentalist brothers and sisters have made it about haircuts and pants versus skirts. Those are all part of God's common grace. That's not what it's talking about. It's not some purity from approach where I'm trying to avoid what is called good by God. It's about the world's values. It's about the substance of the world's message. It's about the gospels that the world will preach that counters the gospel that's centered on Christ. Whether it's long or short hair, whether it's trousers or skirt, it's the substance of the world's message. This means that you and I have to work hard to assimilate God's perspective on all things into all things. When I worked at Biola, one of their visional statements for their students was to think biblically about everything. I think that is so helpful. I need to think biblically about everything. I need to think biblically about power, about money, and about success. And even just look at the last few years. The church, our evangelical brothers and sisters and some of our related institutions have failed at this with scandals over power and sex and money. What was discipling those individuals and those churches? Was it the gospel of Jesus Christ or was it the values of the world? When Christians begin to look too much like a political action committee, when Christians are too comfortable in one people group over and against another, when Christians are too addicted to a life of luxury, when Christians are too familiar with entertainments and sports, when Christians are too driven for celebrity and fame, then they are committed to the world and not resisting it. And it feels neutral, but it's not. Note even our imbalance, because sometimes we'll very much fight for things that we rightly so should be rebuking. In our traditions, Christians have been quick to sound alarms for sexual type sins like gay marriage, transgenderism, etc. Man, do the alarms go up. Man, do we speak forcefully. Yet we can be far less likely to even notice materialism, which is a cancer or the religion of sports, which is only growing, or the cult of celebrity, or how about this one, 
the spiritualization of politics. Those just flow right in and sit in the chair next to us, right beside our Bibles. No alarm goes off. No warning is given. Selective resistance, brothers and sisters, is not true resistance. James is speaking about all of it. He says, wash your hands, not just one finger. Finally, repentance. The, the verse ends, almost more words are spent just on that than anything else. If first we align ourselves to God, then we sever any inappropriate ties, and finally, we draw near to God in repentance. A Christian cannot begin to repent unless they acknowledge God's rightful place over their lives and begin to make the necessary adjustments. We submit, we resist, and then we repent. And remember, repentance is not just a confession of sin. It is a recommitment to God. It is friendship with God. L listen to the descriptions of verses 8 and 9. And to be honest with you, in a culture that loves success and victory and almost kind of a prosperity light Christianity, these are not verses that we probably read and dwell on, let alone apply very often. Verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. He's talking to the church, by the way. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. How about verse 9? How many of you have applied verse 9 to your life? Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What is that describing? That's describing the person who goes to get surgery to get the cancer removed. Or that's describing that painful process when you're using a sharp object carefully, like a needle, to get a splinter out of your finger. And man, does it hurt. Man, does it hurt. But you got to get it out. There's the posture of a Christian who is willing to remove from themselves all foreign elements so that they can be faithful friends of God. And maybe, just maybe, not just the world out there. That'd be the easy part. Oh, somebody else needs to hear this. Elbow somebody, right? Or think about our lost world. This was written to be brought into the church and said, hey church, you need to wash your hands. And again, I can't apply that specifically to all of us. Even for me, the application of this text is a bit less of a microwave and a 30, 35-minute sermon and a little bit more of a crockpot. It's more like smoked meat. It's got to sit a while. It's got to tenderize us a bit so that we can get through the callous of everything and be able to hear the Lord say, you have not been faithful to me, but I am faithful to you. And it is in that seemingly low place, a place of repentance and brokenness, a place of humility, when guess how our text ends? Verse 10 summarizes it all. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. So this may have been a harsh text, speaking to the hard-hearted. God addresses us first as adulterous people. And rightly so. But how does it end? 
with a merciful, gracious, faithful God in the midst of our brokenness, lifting us up by His grace. Let's pray. Father, help us to be people who respond to Your Word, and You will have to apply this text to each of us in so many different ways. How we've been catechized and discipled by the things and the institutions of this world, and we haven't even seen it. It felt neutral and normal. Help us, Father, to apply these words in humility, to be able to look at our own lives and to look to our Lord to see the difference and to respond. You are such a gracious God that even when you rebuke, you redeem. Even when, even, even when we're punished in words, we're given grace. What kind of a God are you? But we pray that this closing song, rather than just a transition as part of our service, is actually a proclamation of our saying, you are an amazing God. And we will worship you, your people. We will wash our hands, O oh God. We will repent of our sins. We want to be faithful to the bridegroom. We, the bride, your church. We pray this in his name. Amen.